I believe that Mary and Joseph's story was truly a love story. I believe that Mary and Joseph were truly a, a, a family that, that grew together, that grew in God's grace, that grew in grace with one another. But as we've been looking at over these weeks, there was a love story for the ages that was going on in the events surrounding that first Christmas. When I call it a love story for the ages, I mean literally it was for the ages. It was what all the ages had been about. All of biblical history looking toward and building up this love story, unpacking God's covenant love for his privileged people that he calls to be in, to, to be in relationship with himself. And the event of Christmas, this, this monumentous pivot point in, in God's love story for the ages is one that we have been struck by for 2,000 years and find ourselves coming back to it over and over and over again, and not just because the economy needs it and, and stores would, would you know stay in the red if it weren't for Black Friday and things like that, but because it's imprinted on our hearts. But you know, Mary and Joseph did not have your typical honeymoon, right? We looked last week at the fact that, you know, when Joseph manned up and, and did as God directed him to do and took Mary to be his wife and took her to live with him, they didn't have your typical honeymoon, as, as one would expect, and we won't go into that. But, but traveling then to Bethlehem, which, which honestly I believe that this was somewhat helpful for them because they got away from a lot of the, a lot of the snickering and a lot of the gossiping and rumoring about them hurrying through their betrothal period. But, but traveling on to Bethlehem, I don't think that this was what they had in mind when prior to the angel Gabriel showing up to Mary and an angel of the Lord showing up to, to Joseph. I don't think they had this in mind as a honeymoon. It got me reading a little bit about other honeymoon horror stories. And one that stuck out to me particularly was a bride writing about the fact that she was so excited when her fiancé's grandparents who were very, very well off, they owned several beach houses, when, when they offered to let their grandson and her honeymoon in one of their beach houses. And they mentioned, and we're going to be at the beach at the same time. And she was like, oh, well, good for you. She didn't realize they were going to be at the same house and that they were going to invite aunts and uncles and cousins and all of that. It was kind of a honeymoon horror story in some ways. It made me think about one of uh, my parents' story from uh, one from their honeymoons. From honeymoon, there was only one of them, but um, and uh, they had decided to go camping in the Rocky Mountains. And you know, they're from East Tennessee. They got mountains there. There's no snow in the Smokies during the summer, but there was where their campground was in the Rocky Mountains that particular summer. And uh, so it was pretty cold. And my dad, he's an engineer, but not a chemical engineer, so I kind of give him a pass on why he wouldn't have known this. He decided to keep them warmer. He needed to bring their little Smoky Joe grill into the tent. 
All right. So um, thankfully, they woke up the next morning. Then uh, they weren't completely poisoned by carbon monoxide. But for the next day, my mom was like seriously ill, sick to her stomach. And to combine with this, one of the times that they had pulled over onto the shoulder so that she could, as a brand new bride in, in all of her glory, open up the door and be sick on the side of the road, she's at the same time saying, don't stop the car, don't stop the car, keep going, keep going, as she's got the door open, hanging her head out, because she's also watching this bear coming out of the woods, b- bounding toward her head. So that was kind of their experience with that. You know, how often does, does anybody's honeymoon ex- end up the way that they expect? But Mary and Joseph, this first year of their marriage, and, and, and Jesus would have been born six months after Joseph takes her to his home. This was not what they had expected, not what they had envisioned a year earlier. And we read about their event of, of winding up in Bethlehem in Luke 2, verses 1 through 7, where we read, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And we're not going to go into today about Bethlehem, the city of David, because he was of the house of the lineage of David, but we will go into that on Christmas Eve and explain that a little bit, and hopefully in a way that the kids won't uh, be completely lost in it we continue on and while they were there the time came for her to give birth she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn I've been thinking this this year about how much we value convenience. Okay, I mean, here we've got like the, one of these years where we got this short as anything time between Thanksgiving <clears throat> and Christmas. Okay, think about how much more you might have bought things online or on Amazon or Wayfair or or whichever than you did five years ago. Right? I mean. none of us five years ago even were just sitting on our couch going, okay, I'll get that for them. I mean, how much more has that become a part of our life? Think about how much more people pay for the food at a convenience store. Why? Because it's, it's convenient, right? Nobody would pay more to shop at an inconvenience store, right? Nobody says, I don't care how much they charge. I know it's, they charge a lot more. I love going to Aldi, right? I love, you know, bagging my own groceries. I love, like, buying stuff off of pallets. I love Aldi, by the way, but I like it because it's cheap. Nobody would pay more for Aldi, right? 
They, if they're going to pay more, they're going to pay more for convenience. Maybe even more than qual- for, they'll pay more for convenience rather than pay more for quality. See how I mean? Convenience has become what we value. In fact, it's been said the Western currency, more than anything right now, is convenience. Online shopping and pick it up at the store. These aren't bad things, okay? Home delivery, voice command devices that order whatever our hearts desire. I read in a Forbes article, speak and you shall have just may be the present mantra. Diapers on demand, takeout in two clicks. We're living in an age of convenience, instant gratification, and absolute modern luxury. But it's at a major cost. It's expected to be driving up credit card debt beyond any other value. Because if you run out of peanut butter, and you can say, Alexa, order more peanut butter, okay? Rather than going and say, okay, where are we at in our budget for groceries this month? Our convenience is driving up our debt. That's what Forbes has to say. When something takes twice as long, we expect, you know, than, than we expect two minutes rather than one. We think, what's the point? And you could even say, our definition of something is good right now is it's convenient. It's convenient. Let me put that through a theological. Uh, mindset here we may even it may even be that when we say God is good we may mean God is going to make things convenient for me we may even have a hard time trusting or loving a God that would deliberately make things less convenient for us Maybe even finding ourselves in a spot where one thing after another that day is like, that was inconvenient, and that was inconvenient, and we're thinking, what is wrong with my world? Right? In the experience of Mary and Joseph's, we're reminded to trust God's deliberate, deliberate inconvenience. We read about this decree that went out from Caesar Augustus that the that all the world should be registered and and just as I'm every you know maybe every other Christmas we're reminded when he talks about all the other, all the world we're talking about the whole Roman Empire that all the world should be registered this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria Caesar Augustus unknowingly plays a part an important role of inconveniencing the Roman Empire. And the, the, the purpose here of this registration, and this happened, actually, one writer I read talks about how it happened every 14 years that there would be this census for registration. And people would go back, you know, uh, people got displaced around the Roman Empire, and at the same time, the Roman Empire allowed for a lot of travel and things like that, and people living in places that weren't necessarily their hometowns. But they would come back to their hometowns, and it was a time to, for them to let the government know, okay, this is, how, this is my income, this is how much property I own, this is how many children I have. <clears throat> and it was so that they could be taxed accordingly. And this wouldn't have happened in the entire Roman Empire in the same summer, if you will. 
Okay, this would have been a cycle thing that, you know, it's this region's year for it, it's this region's year for it over here, that sort of thing. But it was the sons of Bethlehem's turn to be inconvenienced. The Bible Expositive's commentary writes, Augustus Caesar was ruling, but God was in charge. For he used Caesar's edict to move Mary and Joseph 80 and I would say inconvenient miles, 80 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem to fulfill his word. By foot, mind you. Trust God's deliberate inconveniences. Thinking more about the value of convenience, the, the value that we put on convenience and, and that we put on ease of attaining what we want. The New York Times said this in an article I I read, convenience is the most underestimated and least understood force in the world today. That's quite a statement, right? That's their opinion. One sometimes wonders, they continue, one sometimes wonders where their convenience is in fact the supreme value. Evan Williams, the co-founder of Twitter, said convenience decides everything. Explains why Twitter is so influential. It's convenient information. A tweet coming right to your phone. Oh, this is what's going on in the world. Or someone's opinion, at least. But the New York Times also says, Convenience seems to make our desire, our decisions for us. Convenience seems to make our decisions for us, trumping what we like to imagine is our true preferences. In other words, I love to make a, a, a big pot of soup. Well, what do I normally do? Because I value convenience, I'll you know open up that can of, of soup, put it in the bowl, and Put it in the microwave. The, four, the uh, New York Times article also says, easy is better, easiest is best. Just speaking of our mindset at this time, made me think of the karate kid, right? Uh, he wants to learn karate. So he goes to Mr. Miyagi. He's just the kid at this point. It's not the karate kid yet, right? And he goes to Mr. Miyagi, and so Mr. Miyagi says, you want to learn karate? Wax my car. Paint my fence. And he got the old wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off. Paint the fence, paint the fence. And the karate kid is like, or the kid, you know, the semi-karate kid at this point, I guess. He, he is like, what is the point? Not realizing he's being taught, you know, certain blocking moves. If somebody's punching while he's doing the wax on, wax off. So what's I have to do with our passage here? Something kind of haunts me that I, that I ran across in these last few weeks. You know, it's a sacrilege to not trust God. It's a sacrilege. So a sacrilege, you know, it comes from the idea of something is sacred and to treat it in an insacred way, in an unsacred way, is sacrilegious, if you will. The normally, the sacrilege is normally defined as taking something that belongs to God and using it profanely. Such as like in the book of Daniel when Belshazzar takes the vessels of the temple and he brings it into his drunken party and uses them. 
a sacrilege. But G. Campbell Morgan says this, and I know we're kind of streaming a, a, a line, a thread of argument here. Follow me here. G. Campbell Morgan says this, a sacrilege doesn't only consist of this type of profane use of using something that belongs to God in a profane way. G. Campbell Morgan says, in its worst form, sacrilege consists of taking something and giving it to God when it means absolutely nothing to you. Or maybe even only giving to God what means nothing to us. You can say sacrilegious worship is offering to God what is worthless to us. What is convenient. Unwilling to be inconvenienced because I value my convenience too much. How much are you willing to be inconvenienced for the sake of God's glory? Trust God's deliberate inconveniences. We must remind each other that God's blessing often comes with inconvenience. The fact is this. Life is one inconvenience after another. Until God finally meets all of our longings with his personal presence for eternity. Until then, in the meantime, consider God's glory to be worthy of any inconvenience. And worship him with your inconvenient life. And trust him. If we're in a place where we're like, ah, I can't obey that. That is just way too inconvenient. Sacrilegious worship. That's just what, what I'm running through what G. Campbell Morgan say, said, and I, and I learned that from him. I agree with him here. See, God's not usually about easy and convenient, partly because his perspective involves so much more than the here and now. The fact is this, God loves showing his promises carried out despite the time frame. Have you ever wondered why it is that God took thousands, at least 5,000 years to tell his story? He loves to show that he is not only above time, he's the author of history. He's the author of the future. In fact, Psalm 33:11 says this, The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. God's privileged people have always been encouraged by his sovereign selection as well. Deuteronomy 7.6 says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be the, a people for his treasured possession, speaking of Israel, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You are his treasured possession. And, and combine that idea of God choosing his privileged people with the fact that God loves to show how he declared the end before the beginning even took place. We're comforted. We're to be comforted. If we know Christ as our Savior, we're to be comforted by Ephesians 1 verse 4. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. 
that we should be holy and blameless before him. In God's interactions with his privileged people, including Mary and Joseph, we see ample reason to trust his eternal perspective. And that is being played out in verses 3 through 5. Where it says, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judah, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And as, as I said, on, on Christmas Eve, we'll get into more into this idea of what's the significance of Bethlehem. What's the significance of it being, of the, the, it being the city of David and, and of Joseph being the, of the house and the line of David. But all this was arranged for God to fulfill his timeless plan, as you're familiar with and as we sang about this morning. You're familiar likely with the prophecy from Micah 5 verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Now I believe that Mary and Joseph actually knew that they were fulfilling the destiny that God had set out for redeeming his people. It was was a common understanding that Bethlehem would be the place of the Messiah's birth. This was the Messiah's town, if you will. We see this being a common knowledge of Bethlehem's significance within the next two years when the Magi show up in Jerusalem. And they approach King Herod. And you can read about this in Matthew 2, where it says they they were saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And Herod then asks his religious leaders, continuing in Matthew chapter 2, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So I think we can assume that Mary and Joseph knew that they were fulfilling God's plan for the birth of the Messiah by being sent to Bethlehem. As I've, as I've said earlier, God's quite proud of his eternal perspective and also of being in control of not just history, but of the future. This is a theme of the book Isaiah and the prophecies that he records. God's sovereign hand over history. In Isaiah 46, God highlights How he declares the end, I quote, the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. 
And you can read in Isaiah 41, verse 26, where God asks rhetorically, who else declares it from the beginning? That we might know, and beforehand, that we might say, he is right. When do they say that? In the present. But when was it declared? In the beginning. God's quite proud of this. One of my favorite characters of God's predictions, outside of Jesus, don't worry, but one of my favorite characters of his prediction is a king named Cyrus. He's king of the Medo Persians. He was instrumental. He's that king that Nehemiah comes to and is downcast. And, and Cyrus, in asking about this, realizes that as God impresses it on his heart that it's time to send the Jews back to Jerusalem. Not only that, but God impresses on his heart that he's going to let Nehemiah go and lead them. And Nehemiah is going to, to lead them in the rebuilding of Jerusalem's wall. And eventually the rebuilding of God's temple there. And Cyrus is going to bankroll it all. This king of the Medo Persians. Well, before Cyrus could do that, he had to conquer Babylon. Here's the deal. Isaiah writes about Cyrus in A.D. 700. Cyrus isn't even a glint in his mother's eye at this time. Cyrus's mother hasn't even been born yet. It's 150 years prior to Cyrus sending the Jewish people back. Prior to Cyrus even existing, Isaiah writes in Isaiah 44, beginning in verse 28, speaking of himself, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. Who's this Cyrus guy? Nobody's going to know for 150 years. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purposes, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. And as I continue here into chapter 45 of Isaiah, I just want to say something. This is a passage for me that helps me to establish in my mind it's not a requirement for me that America's president be a Christian. Because God can use anyone that he intends to use. What's important to me is that it, they're God's man. But, but, but God foretells, again, about Cyrus continuing into Isaiah 45. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes of the, in the secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I think if Cyrus had read these words of Isaiah, he would have been haunted by the eternal perspective 
of the God of Israel. God desired to be worshipped and trusted that he, may, that he was going to raise up a king by the very name of Cyrus. A king of a different world power that would conquer the Babylonians that were in power at the time. And he was going to use this godless man to deliver Israel. In fact, Cyrus would set Israel free and, as I said, rebuild their city and rebuild the temple. Trust God's eternal perspective. And along the same lines of trusting God's long-range perspective, his eternal perspective, trust God's perfect process. We read here, and I love the phrase, the time came for her to give birth. We understand that when it comes to pregnancy and things like that. There's so much more wrapped up in this. The time came, the right place, the right time, the right people. Like an arrow shot from 5,000 years earlier, it lands and hits the bullseye at just the right time. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. How can I call it God's perfect process? Because if it's God's process, it's perfect. Although in our imperfection, we usually murks it up in some way, but God even works in the midst of that. I don't understand that. I don't understand how he can declare things before the beginning and we can murks up our lives in the meantime and he's still working his process out. That's beyond our understanding. And we talked about this, um, I, I, I looked it up. We talked about it back in 2017. When it talks about there was no place for them in the inn, I don't believe that this was like a hotel that, was, that was like had the no vacancy sign on. The, the inn statement would have been describing the typical Palestinian home that would have had a guest room uh, attached to the home. But also the typical home at that time would have had basically what we would have considered a mud room where they, kept the, the, where they brought the animals in at night. And Joseph, being a son of Bethlehem, would have had family and, and friends there. It's very possible that he was staying within the home of a family member or a friend, but there was someone in the guest quarters, and so they were staying in the attached stable, which would have been equipped with a manger. I think rather than the peculiarity, rather than the unique nature of it, what's to speak to us from this is the outright normalcy of a peasant life of that time. Swaddling cloths, a manger, maybe even typical for peasants renting a room. Luke, one, one writer says, Luke is establishing a contrast between the proper rights of the Messiah in his own town, the town of David, and the very ordinary and humble circumstances of his birth. 
I think I've shared with you before about how our adoption process of our son Zachary was, was um, as, as you've probably heard of people going through international adoption processes, there's a lot of ups and downs. It's a, it's a pretty drawn-out process. You're usually learning all the twists and turns of it and things like that. And we thought we had every document taken care of, every I dotted, every T crossed. And, and we were ready to receive what they call your, your referral. And that is when you find out, okay, maybe you get a picture, maybe you get a description. This is the child that's available. Just let us know. Like, it's not like you're picking them out from a group or something like that, but it's, it's like, you know, is this right? And, and it came time for that, and we got a phone call. And they said, we're so sorry to tell you, but you're missing a signature on one document. You're going to have to wait until next month. Guess what? Zachary was not even in the orphanage yet. But God had a perfect process. What was heartbreaking, what was at the end of a season, a long season of waiting and and working and, and learning, God had one more inconvenience. Well, well, guess what? We, we weren't even expecting two blessings. I hope I'm not embarrassing. Less than a year later, we get word, Zachary's brother Emmett has been brought in. So guess what? He's yours if you want it. Trust God's perfect process. The Apostle Peter tells us about the days of waiting that we're living in. He says in 2 Peter 3, You shall remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing that first, this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And the Apostle Peter continues, God encourages us through his writing to us that that God is patient and deliberate, but not slow. In fact, he continues in, in 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. In other words, God could easily do what you think would take a thousand years and do it in a day. Or God could do what you think he might do in a day and spread it out over a thousand years. The Lord is not slow, he continues, to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Here's here's a big idea here. In God's economy, trust is one of his major currencies. Whereas we put a high emphasis on convenience, God puts an emphasis on trust. 
He doesn't work according to our fleshly, the fleshly things that we value. He doesn't work according to how much money we have to offer. He doesn't work according to, about, to what's most convenient for us. Trust is an important element that God wants. But at the same time, it's hard for us to pivot, isn't it? It's hard for us to realize, oh, okay, I guess I just need to trust him. Okay? It's hard for us to, that learning curve is not easy. Do you start to see some of the purposes of the inconvenience? Some of the purposes for his process being different than ours? Like wealth being built up in a account, God builds trust in us through inconvenience, through his process. The primary aspect of our relationship with God is trusting Jesus as our Savior. And what that means is looking at all of the things that we might think make us worthy for God to love us. Looking at all the things that we think God might see as, as being a, a currency that we could purchase a relationship with him and realizing it's all tainted by sin. It's all mired with, with my selfish will, with my agenda. It's all what I think is valuable. Maybe he doesn't. But coming face to face with the fact that Jesus paid for all that sin. Jesus took all that sin onto himself. And in in receiving the work that he did in dying and rising from the dead, he gives us his righteousness. Do you see how trust is the primary currency of our relationship with God, not works. Trust is the foundation of our relationship with him, trusting in Christ alone as our Savior. There are so many paradoxes to a relationship with God. This morning, I've just shared with you from the word the fact that that. God's people are chosen before the foundation of the world. Yet he's patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should repent. How do those two work together perfectly? I don't know. He is full of paradoxes. And the birth of our Savior was full of paradoxes as well. For instance, his peasant status in the birth of the king of the world. Let me show you a picture up here. It represents the idea of that on July 19th, 2013, an expectant mother who is ready to deliver was taken to the hospital by helicopter from her parents' home. Reporters from around the world converged on the gates outside of St. Mary's Hospital in London, England. 
The parents are Prince William of Wales and the Duchess Catherine of Cambridge, otherwise known as Kate Middleton. The baby is Prince George Alexander Louis of Cambridge. English probably pronounce it Louis of Cambridge. It's a boy was instantly being flashed on the BT Tower in central London. The fountain in Trafalgar Square lit up with blue lighting. According to one estimate, between royal-themed goods and party supplies, Brits likely spent around $300 million simply celebrating Prince George's birth. Third in line to the throne. But for the eternal king of the universe, who had been anticipated for at least 5,000 years, there's the swaddling cloth of a peasant mother. Not a royal robe. There's a manger of what a peasant would have used renting a room. Not a golden cradle with a plush cushion. One writer says, while, while he was as weak as any other baby, humanly speaking, he was also the center of power as far as heaven was concerned. And heaven's concern of things is reality. This was the center of power for the universe living the life of a peasant. I appreciate how Shane and Shane describes it in one of their songs. Come we to welcome Emmanuel, king who came with no crown or throne. Helpless he lay, the invincible, maker of Mary, now Mary's son. Paradoxes. But these are just simple elements Don't lose this. These are just simple elements of a love story. A love story for the ages. Listen to the familiarity. A strong man willing to be meek in showing his love to his bride. A resourceful man willing to empty, humbly empty himself to sacrifice for his bride. Jesus isn't a baby to be pitied during this season. He is the amazing, powerful God with unsearchable wisdom that you should trust. Let's bow our heads.